0: I'll speak the introductions to the two people that I invited, and then Rania can go after. So um, I'm really excited to be joined by uh, Rachel Signer. So one of the first people that I actually called when I started my company was Rachel. (laughs) And I didn't even know her. I just loved her magazine, and I wanted to figure out a way to incorporate it into what we were doing at NISA At the time, it was called Through the Grapevine. Um, And Rachel, I believe, are you from Virginia?
1: Yeah, I'm from uh, Arlington, which is outside DC.
0: Yeah, so she was like from around the DC area, and um, she's not only an amazing winemaker, but she also has this great publication and is a natural wine journalist, so I loved the idea of having her perspective from both takes um, on this topic, Uh, and then ironically also from the DC area, I didn't mean to go all DC on this, but (laughs) I also wanted to invite Eric Moore. Um, who I feel like is really just the person that has like their hand on the pulse of what's happening with natural wine. Like when I think about like who is the coolest natural wine person I know, I literally always think of Eric. Uh, And we'll ask you about some of these recent articles that you've been in because you just are this like amazing voice in the community. So after we were talking about having winemakers on, we really wanted to get a perspective that also came from more of like a sommelier and also a retail perspective. Um, And I couldn't think of someone better to voice that than Eric.
2: So these are my two picks and then Rania, you can go. Yeah, so um, I, uh, the first two people that I thought about were Martha and Bree. And um, I believe that I met both of you guys sometime last year planning the first Wonder Woman of Wine Conference and was super excited to get connected with you guys. But I know that Martha, you were really like the first woman in the natural wine world that I actually ever met. Um, And was just truly inspired by the work that you were doing in Northern California and I've always loved um, your lineup of wines. and I love the labels. Um, I think that you as a person are particularly um, just lovely. And um, when you spoke at the conference last year, I know that it was really, it, it was very special to have you there. And um, same goes for Brie. I tried to get you to come to the conference. Unfortunately, it did not work out last year. Um, but we did connect because um, just of the great uh, wines that you're producing up in Oregon. And then obviously, Uh, Your husband, Chad Stock, um, has come to Austin several times and tasted wines with us, and um, we helped collaborate with your new project. So Brie makes uh, limited edition wines um, up in Willamette Valley, and then that's under the Constant Crush, which is uh, one of your, um, I guess, the umbrella of uh, limited edition wines. And so two of my favorite natural winemakers in the States.
3: And Rania's amazing husband made our labels, designed our labels from, yeah, from very random comments that I could give Chris. Uh, He came up with all my labels and logos, so he's amazing. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Vintel Wine. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. Just a plug.
0: All right, so with that, let's jump in. And the first question I'll ask, and we can this one's posed to all of you guys, um, we'd love to just initially know what your first experience was with natural wine, um, and what do you find to sort of be the most important characteristic of natural wine? Like what drew you to it?
1: Uh, I, wants to can, go first. I can start. <laughs> um, I'm actually writing a book, which is a memoir right now. So this is very fresh in my memory. And um, so I was living in Brooklyn and I was um, like, I historically had worked in restaurants, but I took a long break and then I sort of, crawled my way back to a a job waiting tables because I was trying to write a novel. And this restaurant, Renard, inside the White Hotel had an amazing wine director, another incredible woman in wine, Lee Campbell. Um, And her her list was pretty much all natural and mostly French and... um, I immediately noticed the different way that people talked about wine. Nobody mentioned scores and nobody talked about like prestige or awards. And there was, well, I won't say there was no snobbery. There was like a different kind of snobbery. People talked about traveling to France and meeting these winemakers and going to parties at their homes. And um, there was a a pet mat Uh, from the Loire Valley, Lake Cabriade. I think in the U.S. it's probably still with Selección Massal and the the wine was fizzy and and kind of simple but also kind of like not simple. It had so many flavors. It was to me it was more complex because it was alive and I noticed that it made me energetic. Um, It didn't feel like kind of sappy the way a lot of sparkling wines normally did and so I think for me, the um, there's a lot of characteristics that I would say set natural wine apart. But um, yeah, I would just say liveliness first and foremost. Like actually, really more like things in the bottle that are that are um, genuinely alive is the main thing.
4: Yeah, I'm happy to hop in next. Um, so I always had an interest in. Um, environmental studies and how we interact with our planet. Um, and that kind of coupled with a real fascination with food systems and food history and how these like kind of um, how our politics and history on a macro level has really shaped what we eat and drink and how we interact on a daily basis with things. And so, um, you know, when I, you uh, graduated from college. I went to work on a, um, farm in Italy that was like a full circle. We, you know, there was livestock, grapes, all sorts of, um, different products there. And I think tasting these wines, which, you know, the, the people on the farm called them, they called them the cells peasant wine, um, which was just that it was kind of like a creative expression and something that they had cultivated and cared for these vines throughout the year and then there was this moment where they could enjoy it and enjoy it with their friends and their community and um that just got me so much more interested in wine in general i assumed that that's how the whole wine world was um not growing up in the industry um and so when i came back to California from that experience I said I wanted to work in a winery and I just it was this huge shift in terms of you know some of the things that Rachel touched on um how to more formulaically create a wine that matched a certain score and that was really prevalent when I was starting in the industry and before so I started um making wine in 2006 under you know for working for other people Um, and so It just, I had this um, feeling that these things were, you know, somewhat incongruent and this experience I had in Italy was maybe just on the small farm and that it didn't exist elsewhere. And so when I started apprenticing and working, wanting to work for smaller families and smaller producers, whether or not they were, you know, identifying as making natural wines or not, I saw certain practices come up again and again in the wines that I really felt connected with. And you know, Rachel also mentioned this word about being energized. I think there's this, um, you know, you, when you watch how people care for the vines all year long, um, there's not necessarily a need or a desire to really obscure where those grapes are coming from. And so, I think a lighter hand in the cellar just kind of matches that idea of we should celebrate where you know the, the labor and the love that went into growing these these grapes and so that really appealed to me and slowly but surely i realized that the majority of the wines i were drink i was drinking yes were from small producers but it wasn't just that it was the way that they were being made that was also special and that happened to fall into this natural wine category the more i
2: learned about it or right, bre do you have anything to chime in with um so
3: <laughs> sorry eric uh, we'll we'll let you tie it up at the end <laughs> um so I think it was uh, maybe two thousand and five um I remember um moving back to australia um from from BC, and um, Gary Mills had had um, a wine, I think it was a Shannon Blanc, rejected um, from export um, by the AWRI, the Australian Wine Research Institute, um, and the governing body Wine Australia, who, who gave you permission. Um, you had to send in samples to make sure that your wines had an a legal level of VA and acceptable faults. Um, and so Gary had an importer in Japan where he was, you know, very big um, jam sheet wines. And um, the importer, you know, thought the wine was delicious and, and really wanted you know, to continue to sell these wines, and he wasn't able to get an export certificate for it, because it had higher than legal limits of VA. Um, You know, I think the U.S. limit is uh, one, maybe, is it 0.8 or 1.2 for legal in in the U.S. as well. Um, But that got me thinking about, you know, different cultures and and a governing bodies and, and what, who was, who was deeming something, you know, delicious or acceptable or, you know, a wine of, of quality or a place or, or whatever it was. Um, and it started me thinking about different cultures and how they approach, you know, fermentation, uh, in their culture and in, in what they're doing every day. Um, and then it also got me thinking about, you know certifications in governing bodies um ingredient labeling in wine which there are none um and so that's something that has been probably for the last I don't know how long is that nearly 15 years something that's been you know very top of mind for me um is about how how do we assess wines and what is you know classic what is natural what is terroir and all of these you know conforming place pieces that that come into the wine world. So it really started with um, Gary. um, And it was something that, you know, talking to him was about, you know, his, he's buying fruit from growers who are farming organically um, or biodynamically. And then he doesn't want to manipulate anything in the cellar. So occasionally you have a barrel that goes awry or, you know, that you get more lift than you'd like in it. And so this disconnect between um, farming and what the fruit that you're buying and the intent behind the fruit that the farmer has for it, and then what you're making it into, into a wine, and then, and then to have someone else tell you that it's not delicious or it's not acceptable and that there's no market for it, um, were all things that aligned for me with, um, that we had a very conventional and very industrial um, wine production system that needed to have some questioning applied to it.
5: Uh, I mean, for me, it's, you know, somewhat similar to Rachel. I worked in restaurants. I I worked my way up through restaurants, uh, but I always needed somewhere to go kind of after. And I would find this place in Pittsburgh that actually specialized in natural wine. And I didn't really know much uh, about the genre itself, but I trusted somebody to kind of just guide me and pour things for me and, and let me know, you know, what, you know, they thought about a certain wine and, and they wouldn't you know, the person, his name's Dominic, he, he wouldn't, you know, push me in any certain direction that I, you know, that, you know, was off any sort of crazy path, but he, he was careful in, in his introduction, you know, for me to those wines was something that was super formative for me. And I didn't know at the time, actually, that they were natural wines. I didn't know at the time that, that there was this whole sort of movement that had happened uh, within winemaking. Uh, to go back to a, a, a simpler style, a style where you're, you're adding less, but you're making sure that you're paying attention to important things and, and doing the work before uh, you have to get into the cellar, making sure you're doing that farming work. Um, and it's, it, it was unbelievable because you know, my taste sort of shifted and I started asking for wines. I started running beverage programs. and I started asking about producers, and people would just bring me things that I, I fell you know, deeper and deeper into this rabbit hole. Uh, so I really have restaurants to thank for for my entire kind of experience when it comes to to delving into this subject. And I, you know, I'm happy to be here, obviously, but like I, I, you know, I have so many people to thank to for you know guiding my journey here, and it's not possible without those relationships.
2: Awesome. Um, So the next question I'd like to direct to Martha and Brie. Sustainability is a leading topic of discussion in the realm of natural wine, but it seems like most of the natural wines that we see in retail shops and on social media are often European in origin. So how do you guys think that global shipping and trade play into the conversation about sustainability and should we be drinking more locally made wines?
0: Well,
4: the answer is yes, we should be drinking more locally made wines, but I am also, you know, I will fully admit to the fact that I I love drinking wines of the world. Like it's something for me that, um, you know, I I, I am going to have a little trouble answering this question in all honesty. It's something that, um, you know, there's, Oftentimes, I think what our pleasures and interests are and our joys in life are often, I think, more in line with environmental stewardship than most people let on. I think this is probably an area where, yeah, things are a little dissident, where perhaps, you know, the majority of what we are drinking in the natural wine world comes from a place that's far away that takes a lot to ship, you know, um, So yeah, there are a lot more steps in the transportation and the carbon emissions from that transportation. Um, You know, I think without doing, without having done an actual inventory of those things, I think, you know, if you're living on the East Coast or New York, uh, shipping wine there is a lot more environmentally friendly than if you're going you know or or if it's if you're close to the port that the wine comes in um then i think it's more environmentally friendly perhaps certainly land travel is way less you know heavy wine's heavy it's a liquid um so but i think also there's a question of you know um I think there's a balance because I think there's a question also of, you know, local economy and putting money back into the economy that you are a part of and the community you're a part of. So when you buy, you know, California wine in California, you are directly supporting other Californians and Californian businesses, but there's also an aspect of, um, you know, exploration and trade and creative trade that I think is really important. So I wouldn't want to do away with imports for that reason. I think, you know, this, I, I think of wine as art in a way, and I don't think that we should cut ourselves out, you know, off from the art of the rest of the world either. So I don't have a clear answer on that. I think it's a really good
3: question, Rania, and a tricky one. Yeah, that's a great question. Very complicated to answer. Um, I would say, yes, we do need to drink more local wine, um, quite simply for the same reason that it does take a lot of carbon carbon footprint to send wine across the world. Um, but also, you know... <laughs> The distribution system in the US um, also comes into play um, in regards to a lot of the wines that are being sold here as well. Um, And so I think that a lot of the most important um, portfolios and um, distributors and importers here um, require those wines from Europe um, that are able to be made and sold at um, you know, lower price points than what can be produced in the u s. Um you know, there's a certain amount of history and culture that um is already well established in in the old world in europe. Um, and by way of their um, taxation systems, their governing bodies, the simple fact that you have, you know, sometimes eight, nine generations coming from a single property there, it's a lot more affordable for some of these wines to be made and produced and and sent to us in in the US here. Um, And I think I would be terrified if I didn't have the opportunity to have those wines here in the US to be to be sold and to educate the market. um, Because of what is made at a very low price point here in the US. Um, So I think that they're a very important part of the market. And I think that while we should be drinking more local, what we should really be asking more is what what does sustainable mean? Um, And what does it mean for an industry to be sustainable as well? And I think that you know, transverse is more than just um, a carbon footprint or, um, you know, shipping and, and receiving and exports and all of the complications there, you know, to Martha's point, what is sustainable in terms of having a successful and healthy community within your own wine community, within the wine industry. Um, you know, what is, what is making our vineyard workers sustainable? What is, you know, what is, it, 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 there's a whole supply chain that needs to be addressed. Um, but I think that, that all of these wines have a real place and need to be in the market. Um, and, and they create inspiration for us. And they, you know, they give us guiding points as well. Thank you.
0: And I was going to go in a different direction, but while you're already chatting on the subject, Brie, I feel like it's a really good next step to sort of chat about human rights and labor practices, um, because that's something you were just talking about. Um, so one of the questions that Uh, This is actually Rania's question. Sorry, Rania, I'm going to (laughs) say But one of the questions that we were talking about earlier was, you know, around this practice, and there's obviously been, um, for anyone that's very nerdy in the natural wine world will know, there's been a lot of headlines lately um, about this sector and potential human rights violations. So, um, like, what do you guys think are the steps that winemakers should be taking Uh, to advocate for the humane treatment of laborers? And do you think that this, I think all of you would probably agree that this is an important part of the winemaking process, but first, do you agree with that? And what do you think should be happening?
1: Rachel. Yes, I agree. Yes, yes, it is something that should be happening. I think, um, It's really interesting that this came up in 2020 and I would definitely note that it kind of happened on the heels of this really big Black Lives Matter protest um, movement that I think raised consciousness globally. So yes, like Valentina Pasolacqua's father being arrested kind of sparked it, but I I think the outrage um, was greater because of this moment that we're in and what I'm starting to see and what I really think there should be more of is transparency about labor being just as accessible as transparency about farming and um, sulfur. And like everything else, I think with natural wine, it's probably going to be complicated and it's probably going to be like, I don't think we're going to see an ethical labor certification anytime too soon. Um, Just just as, you know, there are lots of natural winemakers whose vineyards are not certified organic. So I don't, I don't think certifying your labor is going to be as easy. But I do think um, there's so many ways for producers and importers to become transparent about who's doing the work, um, whether that's at the very minimum, sharing with your followers on social media. Um, here's our vineyard crew here's our intern, like here's the the team that's coming and and trimming the shoots on the vines in spring and and really giving those people like a face and um, making them part of your operation or putting it on your website. Um, I mean, every winemaker has different levels of kind of explicitness in terms of like winemakers say how much sulfur they add. They might not say what kind of sulfur, right? Um, who even knew there's different kinds of sulfur? There are, but at this and so similarly, you might say we, we pay our workers um, above minimum wage. You might not specify the exact amount. The, the important thing is we need to start. I think it really needs to start somewhere because it's not happening at all. Um, and I would absolutely love that. Um, and I guess switching journalist cap to winemaker cap, um, we, we we should talk more about who helps us to make our wine. And, and I have tried to do that over the years. And I think we should do it more. Um, it is often migrant laborers, um, more so in the like new world, but that also happens in Europe. Um, and I think that we need to really recognize these people and kind of erode the, the distinction between like skilled labor and unskilled labor, similar to kind of what happens in restaurants as well. And um, I, I think it's a good start anyway that we're having this discussion.
3: Yeah, I think it's a hugely important subject. Um, where to start? Um, I I love the idea of of giving Crops are giving a face to those people in the vineyard. Um, I think sometimes in the US we have um, struggles with that because of their documentation. Um, So I would like to see that, see it at a winemaker level, that if you are have if you are purchasing fruit from farmers or growers, um, I would like to know that they know what their, that worker population is being paid. Do they have minimum wage? Do they have um, healthcare included? Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, vineyards in the US are run by vineyard, vineyard management companies. So I would like the vineyard, ma- the growers to be accountable, holding the vineyard management companies accountable for who's in their vineyard and who's working in their vineyard. Um, and that they're protected and that they're safe and that they have an avenue to healthcare, that they have um, reliable um, employment, that there's certain standards around their conditions, um, especially years like this, where we have, you know, smoke in the vineyard um, and, you know, a shortage of PPP, PPP, PMOT, PPE masks. Um, PPE masks. Um, you know, how do you? How are they? How is this being enforced? Um, what are the? Con, you know, the concessions being given for timing? Um, when you're paying people by bucket, in you know, in the time of a respiratory uh, pandemic and and a smoke influence in the in the vineyard that just, you know, there seems like there needs to be, you know, huge conversations and huge concessions made um, around the health of the vineyard workers and that, and how quickly that delivery needs to be made of fruit. Um, and understanding that this is where they make the bulk of their money for the season, and that they're going to put themselves in that harm's way if you give them the opportunity. So there needs to be, I I like that California has a lot of um, OSHA standards regarding air quality. Um, Not a lot of states have that for um, agricultural workers. So I think that's a start. I think having, having a certification where you're that it's again that supply chain you know we we have a relationship with our grower who um, has a direct relationship with the vineyard management company or the growers the um, laborers that are coming in and working that and I can tell you exactly what the you know price they're paid is what their salary is if they have health care and be able to have a have a conversation around that Um, I think also having That's one of the reasons we work with alternative varieties in the Willamette Valley is because Pinot Noir is, you know, a single a single variety that generally often needs to be harvested all at the same time. Um, If I have a diversity of varieties, you know, my fruit's the only fruit hanging out there at the moment in the vineyard. So I'm hope you know I hope that by having varieties that need to be pruned at different times, that need to be harvested at different times, will really extend that season for the vineyard worker and allow you know more salaried positions, more full-time positions. It gives them security. It gives us a better community to live in. And, and at the end of the day, it's more equitable for everybody.
5: Yeah, I think this whole discussion happening and especially with it happening this year, uh, it illuminated a huge blind spot for this industry. I feel like we cared about so many other things and we, we put this kind of face of like, you know, consideration onto a lot of superficial things, a lot of things that, that really aren't as important as the one that we're talking about right now uh nobody was really asking you know about labor practices nobody was really you know going and checking on their producers and seeing what was happening seeing who was doing this work seeing who was who were working these long hours and they weren't seeing the conditions in which they were done in uh so it's 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 fantastic that we're able to have this conversation but i i feel like it's a little bit overdue uh because i feel like this is something that in terms of, you know, natural wine. This is something that we should have been questioning because, you know, the human element of, of of our business. So how could we not be asking those questions. How, how could we not be considering these things when it really comes to the, you know, this term natural wine. Yeah.
4: I, oh, sorry. I just wanted to add really quickly. Um, I am very happy f- about the Larger social pressures that are happening right now. I have felt in the past that as a small producer, I did not have as much leverage. Honestly, I'll be totally frank. I, um, so when I had brought these things up, you know in years prior to 2020, um, I couldn't necessarily tell my growers, listen, it's not just me demanding answers about this, it's the whole public, it's my distributors. And I, and I hate to use that as, um, as a pressure. Um, I, I wish that people would just said, yeah, this is important, we should talk about it, but actually putting a little financial pressure on the situation at times is very helpful. And I've found that that has been a huge benefit of the fact that this has been publicly talked about, there's a lot of interest there. Um, you know, it's uh it's important to keep our customers, our, you know, end customers happy. And it's important to, you know, obviously the human rights element is extremely important, you know, but for for those who maybe don't see eye to eye with me or are not quite as passionate, that's been a really helpful thing about this year. I also think I encourage um, you know, us as winemakers to try to educate people. So, um, you know, I myself am, I'm always learning. I was very, very surprised to hear when I started working in the vineyards in California that I was under different labor laws than the rest of California. So different overtime laws. Um, I don't think most people know that. And I think if people knew that they would start to, um, we have since passed a law that's phasing that out, but you know, getting involved with the legislation too is is hugely important. Again, I talk, I mentioned that whole thing about I'm I'm actually a pretty small purchaser of fruit, um, and I'm a pretty small player. I think we can also band together as as winemakers for a more unified voice. But I think it's hugely important too to look to legislation and see what are the causes. As in California, we vote on propositions, so you know, this was a proposition on the ballot, on the ballot, really try to get loud about those things. um, So we can pass better labor laws. Um, So um, I did have one experience this year um, that I thought was interesting. And I think, I don't know, Rachel, if this is what you meant when you touched on this, but um, the you know, skilled versus unskilled labor, I think debunking that myth too. I think a lot of people think that everyone who works in the vineyard is unskilled and that's like very far from the truth. It takes years and years and years of experience to learn how to grow grapevines, you know, especially for wine. Um, It is, and most of the people who work in the vineyards that I work with know more about growing grapes than I do. It's not something that, um, is, is easy to do, but I actually had one, um, foreman who I spoke to who was, he would, didn't want to talk about how much he made, um, for fear that someone would say that is too much. You don't deserve it as a migrant worker. Um, so I think there's also that issue too, where we have to, you know again putting a face to them to, to, to the people who are who are making the wine and growing the grapes but also um communicating with them that like this should not be a, a an area of fear to talk about these things
3: yeah and i think i think that's a great point martha and making that more acceptable and and front of mind to be able to speak about and and actually have be people asking those questions from every level, not only the distributors, the sommeliers, you know winemakers asking the growers what what's hap- you know what their you know chain of command is or what their understanding of it is, but I think also that in the natural wine community, I think it also needs to be um, addressed a lot more. I remember, you know i remember i think it was mike benny when he did rootstock was getting incredibly frustrated with the amount of people that were claiming that they were you know natural this wine was natural and and it was like okay so you don't add sulfur and then that's supposed to be a natural wine we know this is a conventionally farmed vineyard we know that the workers in that vineyard are being exposed to x y and z you know chemicals herbicides and and yet, you know, this is being celebrated as a as a natural wine. I think there needs to be a lot more conversation from supporters of natural wine about is this fruit farmed respectfully, intentfully, without herbicides, without chemicals? What are the labor practices? You know, there needs to be an entire supply, you know, conversation through through natural wine if this is if this is going to be it's not just no sulfur or low sulfur um, or no manipulations in the cellar it it's a whole lot more than that and it needs to be questioned a lot more
2: and that's that's a a great jumping off point to um the next question i want to ask because i i think the conversation we're having um about labor practices is we can talk about this for because it's so important, but I wanna get one more question in um, before we take it to the audience. So um, this is directed at Eric and then um, you guys can also chime in if you have thoughts, but um, so there's a simultaneous conversation happening about clean wine. Um, And I know that you obviously have been part of a a recent article about this topic, Um, clean wine and its place in the diet and wellness culture that's so prevalent in our generation. Um, So how do you separate what mainstream media categorizes as clean wine versus the style of wine that um, you sell at your shop, and why this distinction is important for consumers.
5: I think this uh, <laughs> this is this was a, a very entertaining one. Um, I think it, a lot of it really comes down to the fact that you know the conversations about clean wine are are centered around lifestyle. They're centered around you know a brand. It's centered around you know how you know this can be an alternative in, in a more healthy way. Of, of drinking, whereas producers, you know, especially like the ones that we have here are people who, who live this, who this is what they do every day. It's not just some passing thing where you know, we're trying to sell something via you know, buzzwords and branding. Uh, the, the, that's the big kind of divide for me is that, that these are people who give their lives to this, who this means you know, more than just a paycheck. Um, I think, you know, a lot of what Brie said, you know, with consumers and, you know, even us as buyers on the, on the retail front, you know, paying attention to, you know, how is this fruit being farmed, you know, how are, how are the people who are working these vineyards being treated? Um, that is a huge kind of line of delineation for me when it comes to discussing what we mean by natural wine, what we mean by, you know, clean wine, which is not a, it's not a, a phrase that I really enjoy. Uh, because I I feel like, again, it's just a a promotion for something that isn't real. Um, I think that, you know, we have a lot of of conversations, you know, as buyers, uh, with distributors, with winemakers, you know, about the reasoning behind why they do things. And And the reasoning behind a lot of things is for the benefit of people now and then people in the future, the people who are going to inherit the land that they're farming. People who are going to try to make a, a living in the next generation uh, it's it's so much deeper than just you know a product that's put on your table uh, whenever you choose to consume it sorry anyone else want to chime in on that all right
0: well then while we're okay. waiting for um uh, questions from the audience to come in. I have a fun one that um, I'd like to more pose to Rachel but I think that it is relevant to all of you guys and that's around um, like opportunities within the natural wine space. So I know we're talking a bit about what goes into it but I also think that The audience that we have here is really captive, not just because, like, they're they're basically preaching to the choir here. I believe that everyone that's probably here right now is very supportive um, and, like, really passionate about this topic. And a lot of them I know that I speak to, like, want to get involved in natural wine. So I'd love to know Um, I like Rachel's perspective on this because you have two different perspectives here as both a journalist and a winemaker, but just broadly like what opportunities are there for people that want to get involved in natural wine, where is it going and where are all the ways that they can fit in whether they know everything and they're already a, you know, advanced psalm or they're just getting started and they want to figure out a way that they can navigate this space.
1: Hmm. Um. Well, it's a little different in a pandemic because you can't necessarily go to raw wine fair and you can't necessarily go abroad to work vintage. Um, and those previously were probably two really good entry points, kind of depending on where you were. Um, but you can continue to support your local wine club or local retailer. And um, you know, I think being a little social media savvy, you can find out pretty quickly who that is near you, and um, yeah, give them give them your dollars and read about the wines, whether it's online or in Pipette or wherever, um, and and just educate yourself that way. Um, a, a writer named Sydney Love wrote about a really interesting project um, going on at the moment called Industry Sessions, and. That was a collaboration between um, Jirka Jira from Ordinaire and James Lee, Jim James um, from New York City. And they're providing online education for free to um, people of color around the U.S. who are in wine or starting to get into the wine industry and who... um, want more education. Uh, that's a great project. So I would definitely encourage people if you fit into kind of um, the target of who they're trying to reach to look look into that and see if you can get in them. Um, there's shops also providing um, wines for free to the participants. And I'd love to see more of that. Um, but a Harvest Internship still is like a great opportunity. I think now it has to be done probably more locally, I think even a year from now. Um, And ideally if you can like plan to do a month. Um, So this also comes up to the um, topic we were discussing a few minutes ago about like ethical labor. And I think we're gonna see more winemakers also reconsidering um, harvest internships. I know it's something we think about because generally or traditionally the idea and i've done a harvest internship was that you'd kind of pay your own way you'd show up at the winery they'd give you some place to sleep they'd feed you and in exchange you're just absorbing experience and information um, by picking and working in the cellar and kind of having these like really wonderful experiences whether or not you're qualified so like maybe if you've got like a degree from uc davis you probably wouldn't do that sort of thing you'd already be getting paid but this is maybe more for someone who's a journalist or a psalm um, or even an enthusiast so it is a great opportunity it does kind of come into sort of an ethical gray zone that i I think we're going to see people um talking about more i hope In the next um year or so but there's no better way to really deepen your knowledge than um picking and kind of being in the um you know the the war zone when grapes are coming in and and people are processing them and trying to trying to help out and and really seeing what goes on there's also off times winemakers need help with bottling and labeling, packing. Um, and so if you have some downtime or can sign on to work for three months or six months, there's a lot to be seen. There's pruning as well that goes on in the off season. Um, so I recommend all of that.
3: Yeah, and I was just going to add to that, that at the moment in the US, it's a great time to have um, you know, local Psalms um, actually working in the cellar as well because, you know, they've been furloughed and, um, you know, they can come out and if, yeah. For minimal, if they can find a room to stay somewhere, um, and we do pay, <laughs> we do pay minimum wage and everything like that, um, and have labor standards. Um, but it's been a really good opportunity for us to have these great palettes in in our cellars as well, and sharing, you know, their visions and their experiences from working in restaurants in Chicago and, you know, beyond. Um, but it's great to have them in our cellars at the moment, and it's really adding. Um, a, a really deep dynamic to the team as well.
4: Yeah, and Brie reminded me of something when she was saying that is there's also, you know, if you go online, there's been a lot of really cool workshops and I know, you know, we don't always wanna spend every second on Zoom, but there's been <laughs> a lot of opportunity. Um, yeah, with with sommeliers who've been furloughed, um, people who, you um, you know, who are wine professionals who are very passionate and want to share their knowledge. And, um, you know, often there's a sliding scale for these things too. So um, I think it's, it's, it's a really great opportunity if you have the means to support, you know, somebody in the industry who is furloughed. And if you don't, it's a great way to, to learn.
2: Um, Great. So let's take a couple questions from the attendees. Uh, We have one from Grace. And I think that's, um, Rachel, you touched on this uh, a bit a second ago, but uh, Grace is asking, when you're trying to get your foot in the door in any industry, it's hard to turn down an opportunity, even if it doesn't include pay. How do you recommend getting experience in winemaking and being properly compensated for it?
1: Sorry, did you want me to talk more about that? To sure. Get...
2: Yeah, if you'd like to.
1: Um, I, I recommend negotiating with the producer, um, but you're going to really have to make a, a case for what you have, what you can do. So, if, if you have skills, like if you can drive a forklift, if you can. Um, sort of be left alone to process grapes so the winemaker can actually do something else. Um, Or if you can drive a tractor, then you can get paid. If not, you really are there to learn and um, you probably are going to more likely, um, you could negotiate for perhaps getting your travel compensated, I think is something really fair to ask. Um, Or you could like obviously free meals I think should be more or less a given if you're doing like an internship. Um, but, yeah, I, I think saving up money also and and sort of like being being prepared to kind of meet the producer halfway is perhaps realistic if you are at the moment unable to do any of the the skills that I described.. Um, so, I, I think it is like a question of where you are in, in your career um, because to some extent you are getting paid in, in experience. And then the next year you can ask to be, I think, compensated financially because you will have like way more experience and way more of a skill set. Um, so, yeah, I hope, that's, I hope that's helpful.
3: Yeah, I was just going to say as well if, you know, if, you're, if you're asking to just come for a week. To, to help out you know, know that's thats that sort, sort of a moving you know position that you can you know get a lot, lot of different experience doing different, doing different things but if, if you, know, you know in in oregon we have to pay people the minimum wage you know it's you know it's, it's minimum wage but it you know it at least it's a salary um but yeah. you have to commit to being there for you know at least four to six weeks for for the bulk of harvest to be able to yeah. you know, be reliable um so i think you know if you're if you're willing to do that and and you know take minimum wage then that's that i think there's a lot of opportunities out there um for you yeah what
4: what i um did when i was um apprenticing was flip-flopped so um in the new world we do have labor laws um there are you know we lawfully or not allowed to have even like volunteers. I mean, I'm sure there's gray area there, but um, I often, you know, I dove in as a full-time person. So, but I would flip flop where I would do a new world harvest. So I had enough money to pay for what I, what I viewed in my mind as school. It's a, you know, an, a harvest internship in, um, in Europe. And room and board was part of it, but you know, so I could pay my travel expenses. And I know not everybody's in that position where they can make that, you know, (laughs) one New World Vintage stretch the whole year. It depends. I I know on what you're coming from, but I'm also hoping that there'll be, um, you know, I'm hoping there'll be more funding that will come through to to help with that in the future. But it is, yeah, it's a you really are pinching your pennies in that route. But I think of it as an investment, again, like paying to go to school. So it's, it's a mixed bag.
0: All right. So we probably have time for maybe one or two more questions. So if you have one, make sure to put it in there. We had one that I found interesting about clean wine that I think Eric might want a stab at again. So uh, do you think that it matters if clean wine is just a marketing term if it gets more people into natural wine generally? So I'd love to hear what you have to think about that, Eric, and um, any of our winemakers as well.
5: I mean, no, I, I don't have, you know, obviously it's what marketing is for. Uh, I, I don't have a problem if that is, I, I don't care how people get into natural wine. Um, I think it's fantastic when, when people are, are interested in wine in general. Uh but no, I like I don't I don't think it matters, you know, if it's just a marketing term. I do think it matters that I, I feel in a lot of ways it's a little deceptive. Um, I, I feel that that's a big part of it. That that would be my my biggest gripe about the entire thing. Uh, but no, I, I don't think you know I don't think as an entry point, you know, I, I think that's marketing doing its own job. Uh, and I think it's important that, you know, we try to get as many people to to drink these wines and, and, and give recognition to the producers uh, as we possibly can. Uh, so I don't, I don't see it as a huge issue. Uh, I just don't like the kind of deceptive nature of it. Yeah,
3: <laughs> I think it's dangerous when you start seeing people coming through wineries asking about how they wash their grapes. You know, that's kind of Bullshit at another level, you know that that type of marketing. <laughs> I'm sorry, um, I'm an Aussie. I swear. Sorry, <laughs> um, but I I do think if it gets you know someone pick up a bottle and turn it around looking for ingredient labeling or something on there, like they do with their organic soup or vegetables, I think that is um, is a positive. But, yeah, I, I think that, um, I think there just needs to be more transparency, and so I think that in some ways it can be a good thing for having people understand that, well, there's a whole lot of shit that people put in their wines, you know, to my husband, you know, like, that, you know, some wines have as much additives as a hungry man TV dinner, you know, like, so what kind <laughs> of wine are you drinking? Uh yeah
4: so but hopefully if there is more i would i would love to assume that those marketing dollars spent by large companies are actually benefiting you know smaller producers who are taking the steps to make things but i really don't think that's a reality um but you know i am hoping that if people are buying Closer to the supply chain. So they're going into their local shop and they're, you know, can't do this right now. Maybe you can do it online, Um, but they're talking to the person and, and really learning about what, what does it mean to make a wine in a way that doesn't have additives. And, and also, you know, think, um, I hate to be blunt, but like, what is, what is the price that you're paying and what, you know, can we Tease out what those dollars are going to. If they're going mostly to marketing, then probably the product itself is not getting a lot of those dollars spent on it. Um, if it's not, then you know, yeah,
1: it, you might be much closer to a clean wine,
4: clean wine than you think.
1: I just wanted to add something that came to mind. Uh, the problem I think with clean clean wine is that it puts the emphasis on consumption. So it's better for you. It's like taking a vitamin, blah, blah. But what we're trying to go after with natural wine is about production. It's better for the planet. It's better for the workers. It's um, made in an ethical way. That was really where natural wine has always come from. And I think we get led astray with clean wine. And I I don't think that it will probably result in the the kind of um, consumer who like thinks deeply about how something is made and where it's come from in in the way that natural wine sort of like wants to um encourage
2: great should we take uh one more one more question maybe just a brief a brief one um, Okay. So uh, let's see from an anonymous attendee. Why is everyone so obsessed with the conversation about sulfur in natural wine? If you can, if, if anyone can answer that briefly.
1: <laughs> you see me like quickly unmuting. Like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, I I'll, I'll, I'll let other people talk because I just spoke a second ago, but um, we covered this in issue four of Pipette because I, I knew this sentiment is something a lot of people feel like what is the deal with sulfur um and i um think it is a polarizing topic for a number of reasons and one is that it there's this idea that um a natural wine is more pure if it has zero added sulfur so it creates this polarity within natural wine that is not super useful um however i i think it's um People are sensitive about it for a lot of reasons. I think some some producers would like to not add sulfur. And the fact is that it's just incredibly challenging. And it, it's, I think, frustrating for some producers to feel that people prefer sulfur-free wine or that it's seen as like better or more ethical. So I, I don't think that the... Um, the championing of zero sulfur wine should be meant to like put down people who add a little bit of sulfur to protect their wines. However, it is a taste preference for some people. Um, And I'm, I'm one of them. I really love wine that's made without sulfur. And even when it does have maybe like a little bit more volatile acidity. And I know that adding 20 parts of sulfur could have prevented that But I just, um, I love sulfur free wine and I've always loved supporting producers who do take that like extra risk because I I think it results in a really like dynamic, lively um, wine and so I, You know, I think people are becoming less obsessed with sulfur. I think it's still part of the conversation, but I really loved today people talking more about um, labor and legislation and farming and using alternate varieties in in light of climate change. And so I I think the conversation is shifting personally.
2: That's great. Does anyone else wanna chime
3: in before we wrap it up? Yeah, I would just say that if you're doing the right things in in the vineyard, paying attention and if you're paying attention in the cellar and being obsessed with cleanliness in the cellar, then you should, you know, really not require a lot of sulfur use. And I'm, I agree with Rachel. I, I find that excessive sulfur use just really shuts down all of the wine's personality. And it kind of comes back to that question for me of why are you farming organically or biodynamically if you're just going to... You know, manipulate the, fuck the, out of the wines in the cellar like don't, don't do it you know just be, be intentful all the way through and and it doesn't require you to have to have so much additions um in in the wines either um <laughs> and i was just going to reply to soul quickly and say that, that the more transparency that wine can have and the more people asking questions at every level from Distributor, consumer, sommelier, ask ask more questions, expect more from your producers, and and be able to communicate why you're paying more for natural wine. That's more transparency is what we need, and and more education.
2: All right. Well, um, I want to thank. Uh, all of you guys for your time, for your expertise. I know this is a really busy time, especially in winemaking. You guys are in the middle of harvest. There's a lot happening in the world right now. Um, So we appreciate you taking a few minutes to spend with us. Um, And this conversation is part of a collaboration that Holly and I have been working on together as part of the MISA and Wonder Woman of Wine Wine Club, where we're promoting natural wines made by women from all over the world Um, we're in our second month and uh, we're just really excited to be working together and to be working with um, wonderful people like you so thank you guys Um, please make sure that if you're attending that you are following all of our panelists on instagram that you are following Wine and wonder woman of wine as well Um, and thank you guys again.